Welcome to the Weekend Sports Cars on the Marshall Pro Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires, brought to you by the amazing Justice Brothers, and finally, brought to you by the intergalactically stupendous Graham Goodwin. Oh, mate, mate, you can't go saying things like that without warning me you're going to say it first, because two things. One, it's simply not true, and two... You're, you're putting me on a level so far above your own, well, interstellar capabilities. I just want folks to know you're so good, you never make mistakes. So I'm hoping folks can enjoy the next <laughs> hour and a half, hour 45 of your Q&A like, like must... <laughs> filtered through Graham's delightful dailysportscard.com prism. Myself, good old Marshall Pruitt. Hey, I even named my podcast after myself, The Giant Ego Raging Once Again. We'll handle your IMSA questions, and then in the remaining minutes, we will get to as many of your general and fun questions. And before I ask you to choose our starting category, I want to mention here that we're recording this early Thursday afternoon, California, well past Graham's, I would say dinner time, um, maybe oh, even yeah. bedtime in the UK, but nonetheless, no, no. either later today, Thursday, or by Friday, hopefully. We'll have something that I would hope might interest some of you, and that is uh, the formation of a GoFundMe page for my friend, fairly renowned, highly, highly esteemed sports car broadcaster Brian Till, who is having to take the remainder of the year off as he goes through chemotherapy treatments and radiation for throat cancer. I'm sure, as you can imagine, someone who makes their living speaking into a microphone as a freelancer then having to turn that voice off and hopefully save it while fighting throat cancer, certainly going to impact his ability to work for the rest of the year. So putting together a GoFundMe page, just as the amazing folks at Razor Magazine did for my wife and I, knowing that we've been going through similar routine of fighting cancer, work being very limited, plus a lot of medical bills stacking up. So if you happen to know Brian regard his work, or just know that a dear friend of mine is going through the same fight that my wife and I have been trying to get ourselves through. Uh, should have a GoFundMe page ready here very soon that I will blast out on my every form of social media channel that hopefully, if you are interested, might be able to help our pal Brian. Now it's my turn, and our turn, to pass a baton and try and help someone else. So with that said, Mr. Goodwin, which category are we starting off with today on the weekend? Well, we'll start off. Uh, we'll start off very briefly with this statement: "Kick its ass, Brian! Kick its ass!" And please do uh, have a look at Marshall's page when when that's up. The other go for me page. They go with Wekas and Zeldin and Akko. That being the, we've I don't know if we've ever figured out exactly how to pronounce it, but that being the delightful <laughs> World Endurance Championship, Asian Le Mans Series, European Le Mans Series and all things ACO, your questions that we funnel under the WEC, Aslam, Elms, ACO banner. Since that is your, all of those are your proverbial bailiwick, as my father loved to say. I still have no idea what that is. I get to read the questions to you. This comes in from the delightful SRA Smoking Puppy 841. Yes, I love social media handles on Twitter. Says a Silverstone question here. After losing two hours... This year, I was able to stay around for the podium, 
I was, I have to say, very disappointed, Graham. You can hardly see anything, uh, and is and there's little to no atmosphere. Hashtag me personally. See, we're getting the usage. It's going, man. All, every episode, we've it's got like so, five or ten. So. Hashtag me personally. Thank you. Hashtag me personally would cut off the section of the track at club with a couple of cones or barriers and allow the public in. So talking about the season opening WEC race that we just closed here in Silverstone, thoughts on how it truly came to an end with a podium that might not have enthralled. Um, I think the, 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 the issue about the six to four thing, I'm not a paying customer, so I'm the wrong guy to ask, but I, I just don't see it quite as big a deal as a lot of people seem to. Um, However, moving on from that, if the podium's not flooding your boat, then that needs to be relayed to the WEC. And I think what you've suggested there, smoking pop, is absolutely perfectly fine. It certainly is the kind of thing we've seen um, in many uh, many years past, in many race meetings past, and it's a very Le Mans aspect to it. If we've got crowd enough to do that with, I think the answer is that would be a good thing. The only reason I can think that might have been a difficult difficulty for Silverstone was from memory, the cars and parked Fermi were initially collected on the grid. So that might have delayed that process just a little. Uh, but there is a kind of pre-podium with Alan McNish uh, below the podium. That should give time for them to do something. I suggest to you that is the kind of suggestion that's got every chance of becoming a reality. So would urge you, find Gerard Laveau's uh, Twitter handle, as always, as we say, be polite and make make the suggestion. And you never know, you might find that next year you've got a bit of a surprise. Yes, you might be barred from ever attending the race again. <laughs> Getting aside. Let's go to uh, our man, Stathis Coco. Hey there. Says, watching the Toyotas being so quick, I can only dream of how things would have been if Audi and Porsche were still on the LMP1 hybrid grid how fast the cars would have been and how much technology would have been it would have evolved today how different the 2020 rules would have been do you ever think about that graham what if uh, our german friends had I, hung in and what the p1 class might look like today i often do is the honest answer because i am of the opinion that uh, most of the debates about budgets aside from the impacts that their various corporate misdeeds and wrongdoings uh, incurred on them um, that actually a lot of the things about the escalating budgets are actually complete rubbish um, it is a down to those manufacturers to determine what return on investment they actually get whether or not that's at the track or whether or not that's through R&D and there's little doubt of the relevance of if not hybrid technology, which is frankly still pretty damn relevant, but the EV aspects of those cars, and that that is a very valuable part of what is now emerging worldwide for um, the automotive industry. And when you look at the year-on-year progress that was made by those programs, absolutely stellar stuff. Porsche, what was it? It was... 50% 50% uptick in the amount of energy they were able to store in a battery pack that weighed the same as the year before. Uh, there were clear indications that the uh, the move forward for Audi for their uh, last car was probably going to pay off in year two. 
uh, with the, uh, the there being no lack of pace, but clear lack of uh, attention to detail in terms of the serviceability and, and very on Audi like reliability. Uh, it would be one of those questions I think we'll ask ourselves for a long time, Status. And um, I think we are going to look back at this era and look back and think, my, oh my, weren't those things awesome? We are looking with those Toyotas at this, the single fastest sports car racer of all time. And yes, I think that Porsche and Audi, had they stayed on board, would have at least kept pace, if not outpaced that car. And that would have been a mightily impressive place to be. Let's go to Justin at J underscore truck underscore 71. Graham, please talk to the WEC about their new television graphics. Yes, they look nice, but don't offer the most basic information, such as driver and gap to leader. Between that, no live timing. The story of the race isn't being told to viewers. Okay, uh, Justin, and I think there's now, a, if you there's just a said message. okay, that would be hilarious. <laughs> but uh, I think there's another one from Daniel Peters, which says much the same thing. Yep. Here's what I'm going to say to you guys, which is you can DM me or you can uh, you can email me at graham at dailysportscar.com. If you've got comments about that graphics package, which actually in very many ways I think is a big step forward, but if you've got comments from the perspective of a viewer, please forward those comments to me. I will make sure they get to the relevant people at the broadcast uh, team because ultimately all you can do is give you your best shots at improving the show and if it misses a point then my guess is there's something that they can and will be able to do about that drop me a line we do have pre-production meetings i will drop those notes into that meeting directly it will go to point of delivery and that means the team that have both developed and are delivering and honing those graphics we have been asked for feedback on them we've given some feedback already and i'm perfectly happy to do more um you know not no system is perfect and you know it is possible that in the way in which you consume your racing that they've missed something that's of particular interest or particular relevance perfectly happy guys to take that forward with the team and they are almost always willing uh, to take on board a constructively critical comment. Daniel Peters says, do you think that the ASO will be concerned about low attendance at Le Mans this season with the low GTE pro entry combined with Toda being potentially well out in front in LMP one. He says the Toyotas seem to be well out in front at Silverstone, even before the rebellion and L and T Janetta problems. Uh, I think they were less well in front. I think uh, neither, by the way, did we have an opportunity to see how the pit stop cycle uh, worked its way through. So I think you've got to give it time to bed in. You've also got to give time for this this kind of um, uh, success balancing to come into place, which kicks in now prior to uh, the Fuji race, which is based on the relative championship positions. Uh, that could actually be very good news for Rebellion after the uh, the car that they had finishing further up the field was the non-championship car. Uh, but would they be worried about low attendance? I think they constantly worry about a low attendance. Here's the upside. It might mean they have to try harder with the general package around it as to what else is actually available for fans on site. Uh, we don't yet know, of course, what exactly we're going to see by way of an entry for that. 
We know some things, aspirational things. Don't think we're going to see a third Toyota. Uh, I know Lawrence Tomlinson has made it clear to me and to others on the record that he would like to see a third fully pro um, uh, squatted Ginetta. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen about the uh, GTE Pro field. Uh, it will likely be the debut of the new Corvette at Le Mans. Uh, if all of that kind of comes together in the way that we expect it will in the next few weeks. But um, the reality there is they're constantly gripped by the financial viability and or otherwise of the Le Mans 24 hours. And it's certainly fair to say that the moment that that has dipped a little with the change in the way that the field has been put together, the loss of Porsche in LMP1 and Audi in LMP1 most certainly made a one heck of a dent uh, in the number of people coming and the amount that those people were spending. Let's go to Mark Granger. Why was the number 57 Porsche made to start from pit lane one lap down at Silverstone? Mm -hmm. I can understand the starting from pit lane, but giving them a one lap penalty from the get-go, hashtag me personally, I think this is draconian in the extreme. Graham, what are your thoughts? Uh, I agree. I think it is too big a penalty for whatever the misdemeanor or problem was. In this case, it was a really strange one. It's a flywheel sheared, uh, basically broke on the 57 car. This is the Ben Keating, Jerome Blikamoglin, Felipe Fraga uh, car. That that uh, meant that the car missed qualifying. Because it missed qualifying, it was permitted to start the race. But what the regulation says, and it's by no means only them, um, is that they must start uh, the from pit lane after the field has completed a full lap. If you recall here, Mark, it's exactly the same penalty that was doled out to Toyota uh, last season at Spa, the opening round of the super season. Uh, didn't make much difference in that instance, but it effectively meant uh, that that car lost a complete lap. I agree with you. I think it's a bit much. Um, I'd like to see maybe you know, the full field plus 30 seconds or something like that uh, to make sure that they do uh, allow a bit of clearance. But, uh, yeah, full lap, I tend to think, is a bit of a kick in the guts, particularly if it's a problem that actually uh, the, you know, substantial part of the team in this instance, it's never happened before with an RSR, um, and it's a hell of a way to start your season, isn't it? It is just that, my man. I would say we need to move on to our pal right turn lover who asks mm. are there written and published regulations on the lmp1 success penalty system and if yes where i'd have to presume uh, there are we, cars albeit not necessarily made public as it's uh, we, uh, uh i presume there are he says uh, yeah, there, there are i mean certainly let's put it this way if it's not in regulatory form yet we've certainly had a full bulletin on it which uh RTL, if you have a quick look on Daily Sports Cars coverage over the weekend, there was definitely a story from Stephen Kilby. Uh, and get well soon, by the way, Stephen. Stephen's been under the knife today uh, with a pre-planned operation. Uh, we're going to remove the functioning part of his brain. Uh, Too which sexy. We, think we had to is, dial it down. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna, it's, I think it's going to improve matters dramatically. Uh, but uh, the uh, yes, they, they are, the, those details are out. It is fiercely complex. But take a look. Uh, when you've read them, if you understand them, could you give me a quick call? Because I'm oh. absolutely bamboozled. <laughs> uh, as I have said many times and will say for the rest of my life, I am wholly convinced that sports car racing is not actually designed as a competitive 
exercise. It's strictly a convention to put together a bunch of really intricate and often confusing rules. Uh, let's go to Mark Whitledge. I think I can answer this one. Hi, guys. My question for the both of you is what's with the massive gaps in the wheel arches in the new Porsche 911 RSRs? This seems really sloppy looking, but clearly works. I would say there, if you take a look, and for those who have seen, I realize we're talking about visuals in radio format, mm-hmm. always highly recommended. If you'll notice that at the back, behind it's the rear. front tires, behind the rear tires, we're talking about the wheel arches. There is a significant gap behind those tires, basically a lot of empty space, you might say. And I would tell you that as an engineer and a person who knows a little bit about these things, you are exhausting air, turbulent air. You are reducing pressure. You're getting rid of high pressure, getting rid of drag. So in that design, they're actually doing something very smart. Often you would see, Graham, some louvers, uh, something cut into the back of the fender itself to help exhaust air. This, as I saw it, made me think, ooh, that's really smart. They're actually building in venting to extract this just call it bad air to improve the airflow and reduce drag. So that would be the reason there, Mark. Let's go to Stuart Hart next. Is there a possibility to make Silverstone a six-hour Saturday race running into the evening? Summer date makes this possible. Move ELMS to Sunday. WEC needs to use its advantages. That includes evening racing to maximize spectacle. So what do you think? We're going to invert the headliner to the warm-up act the day before and go into evening. And then we hear the sounds of silence. Sorry. Is that your form of protest? Well, Stuart, you know what? I think that's quite a neat solution, Uh, actually. I know they're very keen on looking about, uh, you know, some of the the unique aspects of sports car racing, the Barcelona uh, LMS race running into uh, darkness. We've seen it, of course, uh, Bahrain in the past. Again, Seriously, drop Mr. Navo a line. You know, um, I think they are open to commentary from the fan base to see whether or not there's something they can do to improve matters. Every single ELMS team will now be putting them on their hate mail list. Fair enough. But uh, the reality there is, um, yes, the WC is the headliner. Um, but LMS is popular enough to actually bring people in, I think, on the Sunday as well. Uh, they've got one heck of a grid. Um, and my guess is that people will stay around for the racing on the Sunday, but drop him a line. You know, at the end of the day, I get it. People want to see the six-hour format back. Who knows if it might be six or eight next year? Who knows? Um, but ultimately, if you want to bend the governing body to your uh, your will – I think the best way to do that is with a polite note to the powers that be try to persuade them. But for what it's worth, Stuart, I think that sounds like a neat solution. I love the fact that we are filling up Gerard's social media and or <laughs> inbox here. So got any, oh, I'm any, in trouble. any yeah. good, I don't know, recipes you might want to send Gerard's way, fashion tips, whatever it is, musical recommendations. We're going to get Gerard all tuned up here. So we have Graham <laughs> almost 30 WEC-related questions or ACO-related questions. So going to speed through as many as we can, knowing we could fill the entire episode with it. Going to speed through a little bit here. Going to go to Tyler Cole, long-time listener, first-time caller. 
Tyler, hey, Tyler. A great one here for you. What letter grade would you give Janetta for their full-time debut at Silverstone? For hashtag me personally, yes. Ollie Jarvis had a surprising error and some pit lane calamities, but pace was competitive. So overall, per Mr. Cole, they get a B plus. What says you, G to the G? I think B, B plus is about right. Uh, fourth place finish at the end was probably what they deserve for the commitment, if nothing else. You're absolutely right. There was the issue for Ollie. I had a long chat with him afterwards about that. Uh, he thought the Ferrari had seen him coming. He was surprised it didn't. Uh, we had a bit of a spin for Guy Smith, who I thought did very well on his return to LMP1. Uh, ben Hanley was kicking himself uh, for a run into the gravel as he came out uh, of the pits. Uh, and then we had the shenanigans at the start of the race. That was a, a mistake from the team uh, on both cars. The tyres just were on the cars too early. They've got things to pick up and learn. They will surely do exactly that. Uh, but the reality is we're not going to get the Genettas or indeed the Rebellion to challenge those Toyotas at all unless they can run uh anything other than perfectly and error-free. And by the way, uh, get well soon to the Rebellion mechanic uh, who was injured in the um, the fumble, I'm afraid, from Norman Nato. No, no, not Norman's. You know, he didn't do it on purpose. It was an accident, but uh, that young man uh, is having some surgery. Oh, two questions here, Graham. One from Rob Horn, another one from our pal Smoking Puppy. Regarding leader lights, uh, oh, yeah. in general, talking about, hey, in other series, we see full LED panels used, something where you can have an articulated car number, position number, who kn- you use the, uh, the LED grid to your delight. Is it time to maybe ditch the single one, two, three light system on the cars for something a little bigger, more demonstrative? Do you think that's the need? And are we sending another letter to Gerard Deveau? Or no, that might be Vincent Beaumanil. I think the answer is that it is time. I think particularly at Le Mans 24 hours, I think that would be a good thing. There's a lot of people stay up all night and watch uh, the cars go roundy, roundy. Um, the technology is there. They've got to be convinced that there's a return for the teams. I know they're very much thinking now towards the kind of budgets. But, you know, it's not like we're talking here about small budgets in the first place. We are talking multi-million dollar budgets for a full season. My view is I'd like to see it tried. I think it might be a a pretty good thing. And bearing in mind in particular when you're trying to follow four classes – uh, actually doing that with the differential differential in color uh, on each of the cars, I think would only be a good thing. And the answer is yes, guys. I think now is the time to take the plunge with that. Let's go to got a couple questions here from Rob. So we'll use the one that we had there. Let's go to Chris Alfby who says, would you want to see the FIA WEC become a two championship sort of thing? Explanation. Have the WEC as a four or five round championship all eight hours at iconic venues, Sebring, Le Mans, Spa, maybe Fuji, uh, and then a world championship with quicker four hour or less races happening at more unique and quote different locations and have the series become what the uh, Blanc Pond GT was before the World Challenge thing happened. I, I sort of get it. I think the answer is 
I'm not particularly attracted to that, and I strongly suspect the FIWC certainly wouldn't be attracted to that. What they're looking for is a stable, um, long-term grid. And it should be said, by the way, although we've lost the two S&P racing cars, they're okay on numbers over a full nine-race season, and I think they'll be reasonably satisfied that they've got the format fairly right. You know, Will it always stay that way? That's another point altogether. Um, you know, I think if we moved to a position where we had a rule set between the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship and the WEC for the top class that were interchangeable, that might be a completely different case altogether. We've got a couple of years to wait for that. But that might be the point at which you start thinking about whether you've not you've got a championship win a championship. For now, for right now, I think we've got pretty much as much change as we can really kind of contend with. Andrew Muggridge has a question here, and I'm surprised we didn't get more on this related to BOP and the Toyotas. Andrew says, do you think the shorter four-hour format actually benefited the Toyotas, and will the success ballast and, quote, EOT changes realistically make any difference to their continued dominance? Uh, The answer is... um they ran faultlessly, the others didn't, so it's quite difficult to actually judge that when you look at actually what went on for both Rebellions and both both uh, of the Genettas. It's quite, actually quite difficult to judge exactly where they were on pure performance. The reality is the OT will make a difference, uh, certainly in terms of pit stops. The problem was that none of those four cars they were up against ran uh, you know, undelayed. Uh, beyond that... Uh, the reality is, I guess, if you're equalizing over a longer period of time, it's better for uh, the chasing car because it, it throws into the mix more opportunity for issues for one of the one or other of the Toyotas. Uh, so did the four hour uh, formats uh, go their way? It went their way because the other cars uh, fumbled, to be, to be absolutely honest with you. Will the AOT and the success um handicap make a difference it is already making a difference look at the qualifying times where they were much much closer uh, beyond that the race pace they were closer again uh, they would have picked up time and did pick up time in pit stops had they stayed out of the garages and the gravel traps so i don't think at the moment we've yet had a true indication of exactly what could happen um my view is the Totas will always have a significant advantage simply because of the way they deliver the performance. The punch out the corners and through traffic is a very, very difficult one to uh, to deal with. However, consider this. Uh, we're going to get to the stage where the Totas will, they will get weight, they will will be uh, power reductions coming for them. There is a, a scale that's going to be applied to that. It will get tougher for them. Uh, over the next couple of races and over those next couple of races uh, Fuji and at Shanghai we have one particular thing that's common to both tracks that is a very long straight that should mean that if you are uh, aboard a Rebellion or a Ginetta and you've managed to get close to or in amongst uh, those Toyotas the reality is about the way that you deliver the performance is you could should see uh, one of the other LMP1 cars overtaking the totas on the straight if they manage to do that uh, then you could start to see some fireworks so let's hope 
that the formula starts to kind of work back the other way. Either way, they are going to be much, much closer than they were this time last season. Jacob Bame sent in two questions, so I'll grab the first for us here. Jacob says, what exactly was the reason for canceling penalties in the uh, GTE Pro portion of the Silverstone race? And what, if any, repercussions do you think the situation might have later in the season, Graham? Uh, the answer is there is absolutely nothing to suggest that those penalties were cancelled. I've seen the statement from, of course, from Ferrari. I've seen the comments on uh, a, a website that is not mine from Aston Martin Racing. I have yet to, deter, to find out exactly how those teams believe they were told that those penalties were cancelled. But look at the official record. There is no record of those penalties being cancelled. Um, you know, as far as I'm aware, from the conversations I've had with people in the background and people in a position to know, their belief is certainly the Ferrari penalty um, was basically it was imposed and was not taken away. So I'm not quite sure what's gone on there. I'm sure there'll be conversations when we get to uh, to Fuji. What this is all about, by the way, MP, because I know you were doing other things on Sunday, is um, six cars pinged with drive-through penalties for uh, improper it was overtaking a car under safety car conditions. This appears to be um, some kind of misunderstanding, miscommunication involving the 57 car. That's, so that's um, ben, uh, Keating's uh, Project One Porsche. Uh, the, under the, the, there's something around the wave by where uh, six cars went by that car. Um, and those six were all dealt, I believe, a drive-through penalty. We saw post-race some statements, public statement from uh, from AF Corsa, because it was the car, the 51 car, that actually led the GTE Pro race and eventually ended up finishing off the podium. Also involved was the 42 car that eventually led, as eventually won rather LMP2. Uh, the Jota 38 car that potentially could have cost a... Um, a podium two and the second place car in GTA on the 98 Aston Martin, which potentially could have won the race. Um, I can find nothing that says that those penalties were withdrawn at all. And we'll wait and see. I've not uh, had an opportunity to speak to the powers that be in AF Corsa. We'll wait and see exactly where they believe they were told that. But take a look. Alcamel's, um, uh, results pages also have every single bulletin, which includes, by the way, bulletins when po- uh, when uh, uh, penalties are are withdrawn. And there is no penalty withdrawal notice um, of any of those six cars. And by the way, speaking to team two of the teams involved, two of them were completely at a loss as to. Um, why and whether there was even a problem. They understand that it was a judgment call about the uh, safety car. They were certainly not aware there was any controversy about withdrawal of the penalty. They certainly didn't believe it had been withdrawn. So no clue where that one's come from. It's a very odd one. Jacob sent in two other questions. And as we do, dear listeners, every episode, we ask that if we don't get to your questions and you want them answered, don't hesitate to send them in again. And possibly again. Okay, well, I'll, can, I, can, can I just actually say with one of them, though, uh, Jacob says recently Aston Martin announced their Valkyrie and car car spec will have an only aspirated non-hybrid V12. No, they didn't. They announced it at Le Mans. They, they made that clear at Le Mans. We, I'm sure we wrote that at Le Mans. Uh, so it's not 
um, a drama. That's just a confirmation of what we were told. I can pretty vividly remember, pretty certain, um, that if you go back to the inside of the sports car paddock from uh, Le Mans week, where we had three interviews with the Aston Martin guys. From memory, uh, I spoke to David King, I spoke to Andy Palmer, and I certainly spoke to Merrick Reichman. And I'm absolutely certain we were told there that this was not going to be a hybrid car. And also believe that it sounds like there's a little bit of V12-y stuff that was already in the pipeline on the Aston Martin front, I believe, working oh, with Cosworth. So uh, yeah, yeah. I yeah, we, would we, assume there's some might. linkage here. I, I think the answer is is that uh, it, I'll be blunt. Can I really be blunt here? Is I think there was a question I believe asked that Delhi Sports Car were in the same briefing, asked of David King. It seemed to be asked by somebody that was not aware of the facts. That now has become a news story. And I think either there's been a collective forgetfulness that actually that's what we were all told at Le Mans, or it's a retelling of the same tale. But, you know, know, they might well have actually considered whether or not they wanted it. But consider this. Why were we being asked... Um, about regulations that would actually cover hybrid and non-hybrid cars. It's because one of the two teams in the room had said they weren't going to build a hybrid, and that was Aston Martin. So I'm not at all sure why this has come out as being, you know, a great big story. I'm going to suggest a few people didn't read the stories in June. Yeah, people. All right, uh, we're going to go to Chris Humphreys. Sorry. You, Graham. Bad. It, oh, oh, actually, before we transition to Chris Humphreys' question here, was that maybe just one foot set upon the official the weekend sports car soapbox sponsored by Bushu's Hammer Emporium? I, I think a couple toes at least. It wasn't long, but I think we might have so far off. It was so. Right. No, I think I think it's it's look. At the end of the day, small details can make bigger stories. And I don't want to criticize here, but um, I saw a couple of stories there and I'm just surprised that that such a bigger deal was made of that when it was, it was stated, it was stated more than once at Le Mans that that was the case. You know, I know there's a difference between uh, what's happening with the road car and the, and the race car. And I'm absolutely certain that that was made abundantly clear to just about anybody that asked it may well be that the people who've written those stories just didn't ask. Our pal, Mr. Humphreys says, as a runner last weekend for the stewards for the WC and ELMS, it seemed like tons of drivers were given stop and hold penalties during practice for exceeding track limits. Personally, oh, here we go. We're going to have to assign a penalty here, Chris. You cannot use the word personally on any without of our hashtag. podcasts without hashtag me personally. So um, have we figured out what the penance for this is, Graham? What, what, how does he get out of uh, the, the doghouse here with us? I, I think, I think we've, we've possibly got to answer his question really slowly. Oh, there we go. Uh, I'll insert, I'll, I'll fix the mistake. Hashtag me personally. I went into the Ferrari garages nearly a dozen times over the weekend with Stewart's decisions. What are your guys' opinion on FIA track limits? And FYI, it was all the pros getting penalties, not the amateur drivers. Uh, well, I'm not being funny, in which case they've got less excuse, haven't they? I'm really sorry, but there can be nobody that has spent more than three nanoseconds in the company uh, in any kind of official capacity 
of Eduardo Freitas that doesn't know just exactly what he thinks about track limits. And yes, Eduardo did employ uh, a different strategy over the weekend, which I found, um, well, amusing, actually, which was that you've got a five-minute stop and go um, during free practice sessions if you continue to uh, to bust track limits. Um, so the reality is there that you know, it made it clear. I'm sure it made it absolutely clear. And by the way, if you did it again, uh, you've got a 10-minute penalty. Um, so he's tried a variety of tactics to get people to kind of listen to the instructions they're given, not just by regulation, but then again in driver's briefing. I will admit to having about zero sympathy in those circumstances for anybody moaning about the fact they're going to be issued a penalty. They're told. They're repeatedly told. They're told pretty bluntly. And like I say, you know, you say, uh, Chris, that it seemed to be mainly the pros, in which case there's even less excuse because I'm not aware we've got a single pro in GTE Pro that is debuting this season, which means they've been have been told this in every driver's briefing, every race for at least two seasons. And by the way, last season was longer than most. So sorry, no sympathy from here. Look at that. We got a feisty Graham Goodwin today. <laughs> I say good day to you, sir. All right, let's let's comb through the remaining Weck Aslam Elms Echo. Adam Bowman says I saw an article that Paul Dalalana, Canada's finest bear fighting sports car driver, Paul Dalalana was leaving Aston Martin. What's the word on that? Well, bearing in mind he's just signed up and indeed made his debut in the 98 car in GTE um, for a full season. I'm going to suggest to you that that article was probably wrong. Um, he's there with the uh, two fine gentlemen. Um, was that another hashtag breaking exclusive scoop story? No clue where that one was. I mean, I know Paul has driven other cars. He's driven in recent past. Um, he's driven Ferraris. He drove Ferrari at uh, Daytona last year, and I think the year before. I've got a feeling, BMWs? if I'm wrong, I think, yes, he's driven BMWs, but I think even during his time in Aston Martin Racing, I've got a feeling he did one of the Bathurst races in an AMG as well. So he's taken a look, and you know what? There'd be two reasons for that. One is because he quite likes driving fast cars. Two is it does not keep his principal supplier on their toes uh, with the thought that potentially he might be able to go elsewhere. So, look, Paul Delana, what a nice guy. He's Canadian. Of course he's nice and polite. Um, and by the way, built like that because if he is attacked by a bear, he could kick its ass. Uh, but beyond that, uh, Paul, incredibly intelligent. You know, you're not going to get one over on him in business terms. And look, I'm sure he's made a few noises about I might do this and I might do that. And I think there was definitely a call as to whether or not he came back this year. But he's back in a brand new uh, Aston Martin V8 Vantage, the turbo version that's now in GTM as well as GT Pro. And he looked to be having a pretty good time of it. Holger Opelt says, did you guys also have problems differentiating between the two new Porsche 911 RSRs in gte pro with their latest liveries i thought somebody said this should get easier by the way what's your opinion on the livery for hashtag me personally good job they are really ugly porsche i want the old liveries back uh, i think the answer is uh, it's another theory practice thing isn't it in theory the reversal of some of the base colors uh the red and the gray 
looks really, um, you know, looks like a real differentiation. But the reality is, I tend to agree with you. It just doesn't stand out. It's neat and tidy. And I'm sure when you've got to one of the 43rd uh, models of them on your shelf, they'll look great and nice and contrasted. But uh, watching as I do, either out of a window or on a TV monitor, I have to say I entirely agree with you. Um, it's it's not the best livery. Last year's I thought was pretty good um, for if you're going to go down the Porsche uh, family route. But uh, this one, uh, let's just put it this way: I do hope we get a couple of celebration liveries at some point. Let's go to Damien Peachman, Asian Lamasters question: Do you have any idea on the number of current LMP2s that will potentially be racing in the series next season? Yes, I do. All right. Oh, you want the answer? Oh, no, no. oh we can see. <laughs> you, boy, we, we have a pedantic Goodwin today, I tell you. Ha, 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 ha. Well, bear in mind uh, that we've got to have two LMP2 classes with two different sorts of LMP2 in the Asian Le Mans series this year. Another first. Uh, it was something we could have seen in Europe uh, in 2017, but didn't um, because there was no team that wanted to run the older cars. But uh, LMP2 am. Uh, will be with the older cars and then LMP2 for the overall will be with the Gibson engine cars. I think we're going to get significant numbers for both. Uh, all these things could actually, you know, turn around in a nanosecond, remember. But, uh, it, you know, in terms of teams that have told us what they are doing, I was actually told even today um, about uh, one quite exciting project that's coming together with a team we've seen in, in Asia before. But I'm guessing at the moment that we'll see somewhere um, single figures, but high single figures for the, the Gibson engine cars. We've already had teams like Panis Bartis, Agar Pro, Eurasia, into Europol, Carlin, High Class Racing have all said that they, they are putting stuff together for that. Then you've got some of the same teams I've just mentioned, plus others, RLRM Sport to add to that total, um, plus the um, the Euro International effort with our good friends from NASCAR coming into LMP2M. So combined total of LMP2s, I think it could be well into double figures, well into double figures. Um, the Similarly, I think we're going to be close to, if not at double figures for LMP3, and I'm being told... Uh, that we've got some new takers for GT as well. So all told, let's wait and see because plans can change towards the end of the European season. I'm guessing well over 20, and I'm hoping over 30 cars for the season. But well over 20, I think, is looking very, very doable. That's amazing. It really is, considering where the Asian Le Mans series was just earlier in the decade. Oh, yeah. It was an idea. And honestly, if you looked at the grid, you'd say – well, it's an idea. Uh, there's not a lot more, and I don't know if it's going to go anywhere. It's really awesome to see well, think, that it's become I think, I, what they'd hoped. And I think the other thing to say here, Marshall, is this, and this comes at a time when they've got really solid, meaningful opposition in the GT ranks from Stefan Rattel's organization, which, let's face it, know what they're doing when they're putting together a GT grid. So that's not been an easy um, 
period for them on the GT front. Yet, frankly, had this happened before the Blancpain Series Asia, I think you could be looking at a massive grid, and it's just a shame to a degree you've got two competing series in that market. I, you know, I don't think it's saturated, but I think it does make life difficult at the edges. Uh, but you know, there's things we don't yet know. We don't yet know what's going to happen with some of the Australian competitors because, of course, we're going to the bend in Adelaide. I was actually looking at terrifying flight prices for that just earlier today and terrifying flight distances as well. Start swimming uh, but, now. Start swimming. Oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. Um, but, you know, there's, 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 I think, all sorts of potential there. Uh, you know, the series organizers, as is always the case with anybody looking after, you know, an emerging series, are going to be nervous about whether or not the expressions of interest they've got will be converted into real entries. But I've had some extremely positive conversations with a significant number of teams and drivers, and I think we'll have even more good news uh, when we get to the LMS race uh, next time at Spa in, what, three weeks' time. We're almost done with Weck Aslam ACO. We're going to go to Sean Randall, yep. who says the EOT for LMP1 at Silverstone this weekend obviously worked to some degree with the Rebellions only one lap down at the end. As a spectator at the race, the Toyota's advantage appears to be on their punch coming out of the corners and through traffic. Yep. Is this due to the hybrid system making the cars four-wheel drive? And what choices do the organizers have to equalize the cars if any, I'll throw in here quickly, yes, four-wheel drive versus two-wheel drive, always good from a traction and acceleration standpoint. Really the only thing that can be done, Sean, if we're talking about the addition side of balance of performance or the reduction side of BOP or EOT, whatever, you, however you like to phrase, whatever letters you want to throw together, the only thing that the ACO and WC can do is take things away or give things to them. Here's weight. Here's less air reaching the motor. Here's a variety of things. But honestly, it's always going to be a challenge with a car that has a fundamentally different method of putting power to the ground than its rivals. Could you completely disconnect front power? Just take away the all-wheel drive to the front axles for in the first and second gear could you and there there's a variety of things that could be done there's a lot of methods to do this but ultimately it comes down to we're taking away things from you or giving you things that you don't want one way or the other it's not going to make you happy but these methods as you've seen graham even with the well-explained and this is how we're going to try and do things differently this year to balance our p1 cars at least on the toyota front it's pretty serious, pretty serious stuff that yeah. has to be done. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, again, you know, and I know this has become a bit of a um, a preaching point, if you like. It, I guess what it does show us very clearly is just how extraordinary those cars are. That, that I think, you know, there's no getting away from it. These cars perform in a way uh, that no other race car we've really seen before does, and that hybrid boost, you know, that's been – a real marketing point for these guys. And actually, for the first time, um, I know that there was some criticism earlier in the show of the graphics package for the WCTV. But what we've got actually this year as well, we've seen some of it already in action, are a couple of new camera angles, one of which is 
uh, we've got a camera uh, at Silverstone in the diffuser of one of the Porsches. We had also the camera in the cockpit for, I think, both the Toyotas, which has got a virtual mirror in it as well, which shows you two things. It shows you how quickly the cars are catching the GT cars, and it then shows you uh, from the mirror uh, of the uh, the hybrid car, just how quickly they leave the other cars behind. And it's mind-bending. It's mind-bending stuff. It's a, th- a thrilling thing to see. And, you know, we're going to miss them when they're gone. I, I can say no more than that. Um, you know, it has been a professional privilege to write about, watch, and talk to you guys and explain exactly what you can see uh, on the TV screens whilst these amazing cars have been strutting their stuff and, and being developed and getting quicker and better. But it is, it is, it's a pickle. It's a real uh, challenge for people looking to balance those in this final transitional year before we get to hypercar. We're down to two Wack Aslamaco questions. This comes in from Michael Zenger. This is just a collection of a lot of great words. It says, for some weeks, teams have changed their LMP2 Liges to Arecas for better performance. We now see Konstantin Tereshenko in the first part of the ELMS race, setting times as fast or even faster than the Arecas. How do you explain that, especially with a driver's reputation that is neither super fast nor error free um i think first thing was we had some mixed conditions for the lms race that's certainly uh, needs to be taken into account secondly it was i think if we're talking tereshenko is in the 24 car that is the Paris bartes car therefore that is on dunlops and i think the conditions for the tire he was on uh, were pretty good there is uh, a reality that with the exception of the simply horrible luck that United Autosports had for both of their new Oricas, one the XJTC car, uh, the other their brand new car, um, that without that, certainly the level of performance we're seeing from those squads, I think United Autosports led every single competitive session up to uh, WC qualifying, that without that, the reality was that uh, they took a step forward and talking to some of the guys in the team, it wasn't just the performance you saw on track either. Uh, I should say, by the way, the other little snippet that may be missed in some of those points was uh, United Autosports, I know we've written, have got both the ex-JDC Miller Oricas. Palis Bartas's new car, which was the other car, not Tereshenko's car, the 23 car, is the ex-core chassis. So the three active Orica 07s uh, three of the active Orica uh, uh, 07s from last season's IMSA WeatherTech Sport, Sports Car Championship are now uh, in Europe. Spoke to Orica about exactly that, and they appeared entirely, entirely relaxed and talked about there being other cars available or to be available uh, in the U.S. market soon. Something's got on there, I think, MP, and I think we're going to see more cars coming. Love the sound of it. Speaking of loving the sound of it, we're going to close with one more from Michael just because it's really odd, and I'm curious as well. He says, quote, cool racing, all caps on cool, uh, was entered as cool racing by GPC Motorsports in previous years. Is this a new team in 2019, or is it still running the GPC cars? If yes, what is the background? 
and is, quote, cool, just a marketing name like G-Drive at TDS? Uh, cool Racing, it might well be some of the guys from GPC involved, but the LMP2 program, uh, which scored, of course, a win um, at, uh, at the WC race in their debut in the World Championship uh, after a horrible accident for Alexandra Kwani the day before while running well up the field in the LMS. I think the answer is it comes from company that a number of the guys have got involvement in, which is Cool Aviation, a Swiss company. By the way, coolaviation.ch, I think, is their uh, web domain name. Do have a look at it because it's got uh, cool-aviation. It's got a really funky interface on their website, which I really, really like. I'm not going to explain what it's like. I'll let you find out. Um, but no, this is a headline project from the three or four guys involved at the top of that. That's Iraj Alexander, who's ex-driver, now the team manager, Alexandra Kwani, Antidin Borga, and of course, uh, now employing the services of uh, Nico Lapierre, um, and they could not be more delighted. Alexandra Kwani uh, fracturing his pelvis, I'm afraid, with a really nasty accident on the Saturday, which meant that he missed out on the race win on the Sunday, but still on the podium with the guys. He's hoping to make the next couple of races, as has Jess to you it might be a bit longer than that for that recovery um but no they're a cool team uh it is a it was a privilege again to be actually at the portimao test at the end of last season uh for the european le mans series where the team had the first of their two oracles delivered to them and to see the faces of those guys all of whom have come up through the ranks at lmp3 to see the faces of those guys when that car was rolled off the trailer from orica and delivered to them tears in their eyes it was a wonderful wonderful moment that's passion right there it's a passion-fueled uh, effort and i'm delighted that success is coming to them so quickly we're done i think well let's i think next not for time, the show I, not, but just on no. your segment and we've got it's time to go to 40 ish minutes maybe i don't know oh, 45 wow. if we want to be really nice well i'm gonna do i'm gonna do now what you've just been doing to me and i'm gonna start serving at you um some of these imsa style questions from uh, america uh, because it's time for uh, imsa questions the first one comes from sam Abdul Samid, apologies if I've got that wrong, Sam. He asks about the IMSA All-Electric Support Series. With the Porsche Taycan debuting tomorrow, I think it's now today, uh, because I've now seen that car. Yesterday. What do you think about adding an electric support series to IMSA? 20 race prep Taycans running on real racetracks would be pretty awesome. So says Sam. What think you? I think it would be extra interesting, Sam. I think it would be very expensive. And I think it would have a relatively short lifespan. So I would yeah. like to see it, but I would like to see Porsche spending that money on a hybrid DPI program that lasted much, much longer. So love the idea. I can't believe it's going to be too much longer until IMSA has some form of extra, almost silent all electric support series. But yeah, while this would be cool, um, single make, I don't want to say gimmicky, but single make style championships tend not to last super long, at least over here. So I'd rather see Porsche get stuck in with a proper frontline prototype effort where they can take overall wins and add to more of their immense history at 
Sebring at Daytona, et cetera, with overall victories? Yeah, I tend to agree with you. Um, you know, if, uh, as a marketing stunt for a year, two years, I think it might suit Porsche to do that. But I would hope the racing is rather better than the Jaguar Ice-Pace trophy we've got supporting Formula E, which, you know, with absolute respect to the driver's efforts in those cars, is not entertaining in any way, shape or form. Um, it's, you know, you're going to have to have some kind of format where those cars are able to show their relative performance. Let's move on. DPI and LMP2 tyre battle comes uh, at us from at Der Rusla, the hilariously titled The Guy in a Grumpy Bear Suit. On last week's show, Graham discussed, I'm not sure I can discuss with myself, how the coming LMP2 tyre war might play out with the overwhelming majority of the chassis being Orica. What happens with DPI if tyre development starts to favour the Orica chassis? Great question. Definitely need to delineate, though, the thing that makes DPI a fascinating thing to watch right now and in the future is that with multiple chassis suppliers, with multiple manufacturers involved, a couple of them using very different engine types, we don't have the same dynamic that we do in LMP2 where it's simply a matter of what almost identical chassis is a little bit better than another almost identical chassis and therefore tire development and or just tires in general might be worn better and more competitively on one over the other. The thing we have seen in IMSA, funnily enough, with the Areca built Acura ARX 05 DPI in comparison to the Riley Multimatic Mazda RT24P DPI is the difference between power plants has actually been a significant contributor to their overall competitiveness. So with the 3.5 liter, I believe it is, Acura slash Honda twin turbo V6 in the back of the Areca 07 chassis, we've seen that while it is very fast, very adept, tend to have a bit of rear tire fall off at the end of stints. And that has been on more than one occasion, if not somewhat of a frequent issue, something that limits the team's ability to get into victory lane. What we've seen recently here with Mazda Graham is their car with a tiny four-cylinder turbo engine that is not only uh, short but narrow and compact. It's a lot of things that a V6, twin-turbo V6, is not. We've seen that the lack of weight back there in the ability to use ballast and meet the overall minimum weight, but not actually have an excess of that weight hanging towards the back, its rear tire life is phenomenal. And so, again, just the point being that while the Areca might be the clear choice in LMP2 among spec options, in DPI could be a V8, twin turbo V6, or a single turbo 4, those motors are actually having a direct influence on the tire life and competitiveness for teams using those various motors and how they can actually get, I I guess you would say, fully consistent tire life throughout an entire stint. So I don't see the LMP2 tire war actually having any direct influence on DPI. 
Excellent point, Pete, and very well made. Let's move on. Uh, Mark Cardilla says, any chance that Imps is more aggressive DP? Yes, D is the editor. I'm dropping the I, he says. 2.0 will include more passenger car styling, including a rear window that gives us fans a view of the engine. Well, don't drop the I, because I just, I'm not going to call them Daytona no. prototypes. I've lived no, through that no. era. I'm permanently scarred. No. Uh, plus, <laughs> if we're looking at the four makes that are currently in the series, Acura, Mazda, Cadillac, and Nissan, only one is American, so there is uh, a predominance of international involvement. I believe that is going to be the case, Mark, that, yes, we will have more road-based styling. I do not know exactly how they plan on rolling that out yet. I like the idea of a rear window. Granted, that was also something that we did have in the dreaded DP days. Do like the idea, though, of making things a little more showy, a little less everything buried beneath acres of carbon fiber bodywork. So that would be one if they aren't already doing that. I will definitely, you know what I'm going to do, Graham? I'm going to send an email to Gerard Nouveau and just ask him to forward that to IMSA since we're using the head of the WEC for all of our uh, email-related communications. And we have silence again. Oh, my God, I'm an idiot. Johnny Schultz uh, uh, from Twitter uh, says it's, it's, it's put in a modified, re-entered question. It's, it's evolution. Assuming the LMP2 in WEC have to be slowed down, that being, of course, because of the uh, hypercars for next season. What about the other series those cars race in? Not slowing them down could make WC LMP2 unattractive by comparison. Doing so could repress both the ELMS and Asian Le Mans series, and for that matter, I guess IMSA. Well, seeing as how we have not, to my recollection, Graham, seen much, if any, American IMSA LMP2 migration to the Elms or the Aslams, since we have not seen, again, uh, I know that while we might have had some teams come over and play in LMP2 at Le Mans, for example, in, in recent years, it would be a case of often renting something, leasing something that was facilitated by a team there. I can't foresee that really becoming a thing, though, of, quote, faster American LMP2s uh, possibly either coming over and or limiting interest in what takes place in Europe. I would say... I think the big attraction for the ELMS and Asian Le Mans series that I continue to hear about in America is the cost. And so even if they are slower than, say, their American cousins, I still think folks are going to look and say, boy, yeah, all right, maybe they're not as speedy as they once were, but boy, uh, the price tag to come play here is just far more friendly. Obviously, IMS is moving to a modified, shortened schedule starting next season, Graham, uh, hoping to stoke interest in LMP2 by bringing down the costs there. They're bringing down the costs, though, by carving races from the schedule, not actually doing things fundamentally within the rules or otherwise to bring down costs of the individual per race uh, outlay of cash and such. So I, I don't see much uh, here that might be problematic based on slowing down the cars over here because of hypercar and over in America, them being faster. And we've already seen IMSA with the DPIs has broken a bit from the European call it standard 
not BOP, but just the level set for performance. We've already seen some adjustments uh, to try and create separation between P2 and DPI here. So I would say America's already been a maverick and kind of sort of chosen to do its own thing. So uh, I don't see any real linkage here being an issue, Johnny. Fair news. Uh, there's a couple of quick ones here. I'll just give a quick answer to from David Shutt and Jacob Bain, both of whom are asking around the prospects of seeing the Inter-Europe or Ligier uh, for some later races in the Emsworth Tech Sports Car Championship. I think you've had your answer, actually, because one of the races the team planned to run was Laguna Seca. Uh, I suspect, I've not had confirmation, I've asked, I've not yet had a response, that that program has been replaced by a multi-car effort the Asia Le Mans series. So uh, I think the chances you've seen the Norwich City coloured uh, uh, Ligier uh, across the United States has gone for this season at least, and we wait to find out whether or not it's one, two, or more cars for the Asia Le Mans series. Um, hint, it's more than two. Uh, but uh, the Polish team, uh, are extremely busy right now with the European programs, and Asia is going to be their next target. Next up, uh, Johnny Schulzer asks, pretty blunt question, why is BMW bad at racing? BMW <laughs> Motorsport's <laughs> most, <laughs> most recent factory... That high-pitched whirring noise is, is, I'm afraid, Charlie Lamb spinning in his grave. Um, but God bless you, Charlie. Uh, BMW's most recent factory run activities in sports car racing did not go very well. Last in WEC, currently last in IMSA GTLM, significantly worse than Audi and DTM under the new Class 1 regulations. Could be the deeper reason for this, or is it just a coincidence? Well, Johnny, thank you again for the laugh. Woo, that's a boy. All right. Uh, pretty simple one here for me. Yeah, pretty one, the pretty simple one here for me, Graham. I actually view things in a very different direction. It has nothing to do with BMW being bad at racing. I think they deserve praise. I think they deserve our praise and thank you. I know that they canned the WEC GTE Pro program with MTech. I understand that that came and went pretty quickly. I honestly just say thank you to BMW. Because at a time where they did not have a model that was, or I would say even today is, a true fit for GTE Pro slash GT Le Mans here in IMSA, they've chosen to stay in the sport and continue racing. We all know it is, I was going to say Herculean, Hulkulean in size. It's a big old thing, this M8 GTE. It is not anything remotely like the cars it plays with in the class it has required exceptional effort and i'll just speak on the home front here exceptional effort from imsa to give it more this more that to compensate for the fact that this is a very large high performance sedan not a true supercar like you would say maybe the corvette happens to be the ferrari i would say a hypercar uh, passing as a supercar in the Ford. Uh, Porsche's maybe the closest to reality, but even that's a true supercar. This is not a vehicle that was ever born and intended to go race at Le Mans or at Sebring in just a straight fight and be competitive against the aforementioned manufacturers. So I give BMW full marks, Graham, 
for saying we don't have yep. something that fits, but we're going to stay, knowing that at least here in America, when they were between models, there was a transition between the old, I think it was the E46 M3 model that they were racing in IMSA's, I'm sorry, the American Le Mans Series GT2 category. That was phased out, and I don't remember how long. It might have been a year or two, however long it was, but it actually went away and waited until the, its successor, I believe it was the E90 model M3 came in and raced that and then that was phased out and they didn't actually have a successor to that so they modified a z4 z4 for those outside of america a gt3 car and turned that into a gtlm slash gte pro style vehicle so again i just i can't disagree johnny that this hasn't been glory for bmw but i would say if they were to do what most manufacturers have done or even they've done in the past and step away until they do, uh, I think we'd be at an even greater loss right now. Uh, well, oddly enough, it seems Steve Tenney uh, sees the things in opposite direction. Uh, Marshall, he says, I follow the MC GTLM racing teams pretty closely as a BMW fan. Recently attended the race at VIR. Also watched Road America. Uh, the M8s had a ride height problem, lost a pole position at Road America, but seemed to be pretty competitive during the race. It just didn't move up. However, IMSA reacted by giving them a power reduction going to VIR, which seems strange. When you look at the performance of the M8 at VIR, well off the pace by itself, Seema struggled, but IMSA won't leave the BMW power alone, even when they don't win. Seems rather unfair. Your thoughts? I'm guessing that Steve fries a BMW. Even if he doesn't. Yeah. So 2019 has had some oddities, Steve, where, for example, Corvette in a rough patch, having not won for a while in a place where their cars have looked not competitive and you get the next round of BOP adjustments and powers taken away or weights added or something where you go, what? <laughs> um, I look, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell you who will work for which organizations in the future, uh, who will be replaced, who will be added. I can just say that as someone who receives a lot of input from a lot of people, as do you and other racing reporters. We work in a small sport. We hear a lot of people. There aren't many of us that do what we do, so we're the rallying point for a lot of thoughts. Um, uh, This has been a banner year for folks saying, what the F is going on, at least on this side of the Atlantic, in terms of BOP management? And I'm not saying they haven't done a good job in general. There are many classes and many series to try and juggle. There are times where we have said, perfection i mean the the top three or four five cars they were all within a nanosecond of each other it was amazing and then there are times where you go what is going on cadillac being the prime example and i know we're stepping away from bmw i'm just trying to bring another example here steve we mentioned not too long ago that cadillac not as a brand But as the teams entering Cadillacs called for a meeting with IMSA, and I don't know all of the team owners that were there. There's, what, four uh, entrants that field Cadillacs here. Uh, I believe four. It could be off. But whatever the number is, 
I don't know how many were there. I believe that many, most, a lot were there. Called a meeting with IMSA and senior figures of NASCAR as well, Graham, right? Wow. We're, you know, we're not just talking to mom. We're also talking to dad and grandpa and effectively threw down and said, look, our cars have not been competitive for a long time. Summer long, we've been nowhere. This isn't a mystery. There's no, oh boy, you're just a half a tenth off per lap. And boy, it's a little tweak. It's been ridiculous how far we've been off. And yet there's been no action. Then we heard that there was a formal meeting between Cadillac as a manufacturer and IMSA to look at rectifying this problem. You don't have those kinds of meetings, guys, if there's a general feeling that a department, a group, a figurehead, an underling, whomever it is, has proper control of a system that dictates competitiveness. Oh, by the way, thanks again to Bushu's Hammer Emporium for the soapbox I'm currently standing on. Fantastic. The issue here, which you've heard me talk about many times on this show, balance of performance is a man-made slash woman-made, human-made construct. Therefore, it is upon man or woman or man and woman to execute it at a high percentage, something where you go, you aced that test. And if you didn't ace it, as we gave grades earlier, maybe you got a B plus. But there's an expectation that since a series has created a construct that affects the competitive capabilities of disparate vehicles to allow them big motor, small motor, front wheel drive, rear wheel drive, front engine, rear, all, just in general, not pointing directly at him. So just in general, we're going to throw a lot of different things on track that were built with a lot of different things in minds and goals that might not have been the same. How do we allow them to fight and play and entertain you? Well, we're going to use something that takes some away from here, gives some there. We're going to balance it all. Great. You've chosen to do that. Those teams and our manufacturers have chosen to come do that and play with you. Therefore, there's an expectation that if you're controlling things and there are people, not computers, but people that make choices, that those choices more often than not are going to create that balanced playing field. That is the simple foundation. It's the tenet of how the competition takes place. And when that doesn't happen for two races, three races, four races, there have to be questions, Graham. Do we fundamentally as an organization, whether it could be IMSA, could be SRO, could be whomever, are we missing something? Is there a grudge? There were people, right? We're, we're man and woman. We're making decisions. There's certainly... No one is perfectly unbiased. Who knows? Again, are we just missing something? Is there a procedural fault? Is there a lack of taking people's concerns or problems or data seriously? I don't know. I do know that most organizations that use BOP pull a ton of information off those cars. Real time through telemetry, post-session, downloading, gobs of information it's not for a lack of who's capable who's not we also have situations where teams and our manufacturers try and game the system right try and put one over 
on the, the BOP setters, those who are setting the BOP at the races. So there's some gamesmanship of trying to detect who's acting, who's faking it, and what's real. I get, I'm not saying this is easy. Of course it's not. Just look at the WEC since Toyota has remained as the only manufacturer with a hybrid. It's been impossible. No other brand has won while they have tried to balance it with the rebellions and Genetas and whatnot. We know it's hard. But when you say, boy, <laughs> there's a, I'm exaggerating, a 47-second gap in lap time between the, the Toyotas and the rebellions, you go, ding, ding, ding. Someone's failing on a human level. And when you have that, obviously at a much smaller number, but something where a brand like a Cadillac can't win, just simply cannot win because the decisions made by a sanctioning body or the M8 get its, gets its butt handed to itself. And then you go to the next race and go, oh, great. So we're taking more away from you. You hope that the folks who made that decision as I prepare to step down from Bushu's Hammer Emporium, finely manufactured soapbox. You would hope those people, Graham, say, huh, what did we miss? What were we led to believe would happen that didn't? And is there a common sense aspect to this? Hey, our simulation, our computers that we fed this data into have said this vehicle needs something taken away to slow it down, even though it's been slow. But according to simulation at this track, we made this change for... Boy, it says it would be too fast if we didn't do it. What happens afterwards? Is there a sniff test? You go, yeah, that might not have sounded right from the beginning. Can we trust the computer? Is the computer actually being relied upon too heavily to make decisions? I don't have answers to all this. I certainly know, though, that in the case raised here by Steve, for any of the Cadillac team owners, heck, for any Cadillac fans, you don't have to know a darn thing about how balance of performance works to realize in these instances hasn't been working. There you go. I think that's pretty clear. <laughs> um, we're going to run through a couple of very couple of quick, uh, couple of very quick questions. I'll get the the words in the right order in a moment before we move on briefly to the general and uh, to the fun uh, questions at the end here. Um, Peter Landes asks about new GT2 spec cars from SRO and whether or not there might be any chance of them to creating a place to race in any of their series. I think the answer for the foreseeable is a firm no. Uh, we'll wait and see whether or not that's a class of cars that gains traction at that point may be something different but for the moment i don't see that anywhere other than whether intended for which is the sprint races uh, in uh, the sro uh Blancpain, um sports club uh, events that we're going to be seeing uh in uh, north america and asia as well as in europe so that, that's that one uh let's have a quick look here's one for yourself Giampera Moretti and the Momo team from Ian Keyworth whatever happened to them from the 1990s did they just wind up the operation they're still a going concern would be great to see them back racing with the iconic red yellow imagine a Momo Ferrari DPR we of course did have Momo GTC cars didn't we yes we did uh, and there's a modern owner of Momo and there's uh, they have their, I forget the name of their safety research uh, organization. Um, yep. Well, yeah, 
uh, Jean Piero, they obviously had some success there at Daytona. Great success later in the 90s. Uh, Jean Piero stepped back from racing. Obviously, he passed away a couple of years ago, unfortunately. But yeah, would just say Ian, fairly natural life cycle of a very passionate sportsman coming in, enjoying his sports car racing, having a lot of success, even going as far as commissioning his own prototype at one point, and then the kind of normal wind down of having raced, having won, having aged, and stepping away. So I'm unaware of there being any true acrimony related to the uh, life cycle of that team coming to an end. Uh, but yeah, at least in modern version, we have seen. Uh, it's been a little while, obviously. The ALMS is no longer here, nor is the GTC class. But I do believe the rather beloved Sean Edwards raced a uh, Momo livery he car did. in GTC as well. Chromy, chromish, if I th- think I recall, but... Yeah, it's been a little while. Uh, I believe they've been putting a lot of their work into the Motorsport Safety Foundation and such. Um, so that's the best of my knowledge, which might not be as much knowledge as it should be. Okay, a couple of quick uh, questions for the end of uh, IMSA here. Alex Eichmiller uh, says, seeing the number of gentlemen drivers and long-term progress that IMSA announced they're stepping away for next season or cutting back. Is this just normal, cyclical uh, nature of pro-am sports car racing or cause for greater concern? Well, I mean, I think, I think certainly in the case of Ben Keating, I think it's a recognition on Ben's uh, front that he was not going to win his play for Le Mans in IMSA this season and making an early... Uh, bid for a program that is well is going to take him to Le Mans is the fairly obvious conclusion there. But uh, what else can you say about some of the other programs that we're beginning to hear rumbles about, MP? I am going to decline to name names, but you could obviously assume that with some of those that Alex has highlighted, it probably wouldn't be too far to figure out. Maybe one or two I might have spoken with. By no means a consensus. We're getting out for this specific reason, all of us in a united fashion would say that costs have certainly been cited as something that on the GTD level are becoming almost untenable for some, I would say in the DPI level. Ooh, boy, that was a bit of a surprise. Obviously they projected what it would cost uh, for the core auto sport team, John Bennett and such, but still it's a lot of money and nowhere close to what would be needed to continue the fight against factories as a pretty significant amount being spent by Tequila Patron, Ed Brown, and whatnot uh, came in under the ESM side. So I would definitely say that we have a case where IMSA should be thinking about costs in greater ways than they have been on the GTD front. If we look at where things are headed for next season. It's great to see the Robinson family stepping in to backfill the void created by Ben Keating once they're done with the season and move on from Riley's Bill Riley's team. But if you just start to look through, Graham, IMSA's GTD roster, and you start to look at those entrants, I'm talking full-time. Uh, the Starworks team, a little bit hard there, a little bit of a struggle. It's a true pro-am team. It doesn't have a manufacturer, you know, privately funding a vast majority of what it's doing. FAF Motorsports, new edition, great, uh, Canadian auto dealer based and such. So 
a good link with Porsche as well. So I think that's going to be in pretty good shape. Magnus Racing, obviously, we're expecting John Potter to step away. We know team owner, founder, driver. We know that Andy Lally is looking for work. We know the team has been told, uh, don't hold off on brushing up your resumes. So concerned that that party's coming to an end. John having raced in LMS, Grand Am, IMSA, and World Challenge. Um, the AIM Vassar Sullivan team. It's new. It's not a factory team. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. There's some pretty darn strong ties to Lexus right there. I'm not saying that Lexus is paying for the whole thing. I'm just saying that there's undeniable ties there, not in the way that, say, a FAF motorsports team operates. Just, again, looking at the full-timers, you have the Rileys, right? You have the Riley Angle with their strong ties to Mercedes, but those are indeed privateer-funded. And from there, you have Paul Miller Racing, strong tie with Lamborghini, <clears throat> privately funded, but still there's a good, you know, there's a strong bond there. After that, we have the Meyer Shank Racing Team slash Heinricher Racing. Jackie Heinricher has been a, a breath of fresh air, bringing in a new major sponsor there. We do know without a doubt that Acura is uh, heavily aligned with that team. And from there, we have Scuderia Corsa, heavy for our alignment. Um, you work through the remaining, right? Park Place Motorsports, uh, strong alignment with Porsche, but also privately funded. Just a few others, Graham, to run through here. Turner Motorsport, they're obviously BMW through and through. Um, in many instances, there is some sort of real manufacturer relationship. And whether mm-hmm. it is money being spent privately to help uh, or other levels of assistance, it's hard looking through IMSA's GTD roster to find true, I am a person who loves to race and a businessman or businesswoman and spend out of my own pocket. This is a true pro-am team. I hired a pro to be my teammate, and this is just the conventional pro-am format. Um, those are becoming harder to identify. And so when we see a true pro-am like a Ben Keating, uh, when we see that with John Potter as well, looking to go away again in DPI with a true privateer running the Nissan, you know, a Nissan badged DPI, it's very worrying. And so as we start to lose these true bona fide pro-am setups, Graham, I would say IMSA really does need to think about how it grows itself because I don't know when we return next season to close here if we're going to be staring at any class that has truly grown in full season entries. We're expecting, we know GT Le Mans is going to be down. We fear DPI could be down if homes are not found for the Nissans. I know that I wrote a story saying that Mazda's working on close to hoping to have a privateer, uh, a car supplied to a privateer. So who knows? Maybe that'll be a wash. We don't know if all the other cars are going to be back, but growth is not something I've heard about. Actual full season number coming up. P2, we don't know. We might have growth, but we're currently looking at two full times. So unless it's five or six, any growth is going to be nominal. And then GTD as well. It's a real concern about whether that number is going to come up. So uh, 
might not see drastic changes here, Brother Goodwin, but I would say for those who like looking at trends, this should not be something where IMSA waits a few more years to see the data and possibly see a year-by-year minor tick downwards to then say, oh, maybe we have a problem. They need to treat the off-season of 2019 like they have a problem. It's a fair point, well made. Uh, and you've answered actually with that uh, point around the potential third uh, Mazda. The final question I was going to point us in the direction of there. How long we got, MP? Uh, we got about uh, 14, 15 minutes. Do you want to serve me up a couple of from uh, the, the general questions or the fun questions? I think we just flirt between in a very catty way <laughs> and don't even call out which one we're in. We are just going to answer with abandon and fun. Hopefully dun, dun, dun. just got to decide which one I'm going to start with here. Uh, here we go. Let's throw some stones from pop cycles. Mark urban SRO has no fans and no proper TV coverage. It's on CBS, oh, CBS SN in the U S but that's normally an extra pay channel. Who would want to sponsor a car with no return? Do you want to answer that or you want um, me to? <laughs> uh, right. I'll serve a crack at it. Uh, this is obviously a U.S. point. So, number one, they do have, uh, outside of the USA at least, I can't comment on what they've got in the USA, an excellent streaming package on YouTube for just about everything they do. Um, we are still... A little bit old world, I'm afraid, in North America with the way in which some of those TV deals actually run. Um, and I'm afraid you're stuck with that for the time being. Those deals are still done in North America in a way in which they probably aren't, for the most part, done elsewhere. Uh, it's one of the reasons why, for instance, I can actually watch IMSA TV online with no breaks, etc., etc. You can't, which does seem to be a little bit anachronistic. Um it's certainly true to say that a fair amount of SRO's racing does not attract the fewer numbers that you might expect that it does. Um, it's not for the one of the quality of the pictures that are being put out. I have, for quite some time, been of the opinion that pure GT3 racing is not the audience draw that people perceive it to be. But I think the point being made here, MP, is more to do with the the way in which uh, the product is presented on track and off track in North America. Um, look, you know, it's a pickle, isn't it? There's, there's not all the money in the world to get the, the very best TV coverage for every single piece of racing out there. There is high-quality racing and high-quality events around the world that feature GT3, and for that matter, GT3 and GT4 cars together, uh, but not every race can be a classic. I think you've used the word pickle at least three times. So, um, Have I? Yeah, I don't, not necessarily in that pick, answer, a, but this episode. So, it's a, like we said, it's, a, it's a, a pickle. It's a pickle triple. Well, it's a it's a triple. I don't know what it is, but it's, since we set a maximum three usage BOP standard, I think we've reached our pickle citation. I won't limit. say any, no more pickles from me. All right, let's. Uh, should I just say I shouldn't? Uh, well, no. Uh, yeah, I will. Um, so one of the funnier emojis that one can send back and forth to folks via text 
is the uh, the purple eggplant emoji and i also know that that's often used as some sort of sexual thing as well i'll just mention for no particular reason because i guess i thought of pickle and then it migrated to eggplant i've had fun of late in responding to folks it all male i will say um and i believe all straight i mean some might be gay i don't know but regardless um i've just had fun lately in responding to some of them by doing nothing more than just responding with the eggplant emoji. Um, it's been really fun just to see their responses, often very awkward. So just saying, if you're a little bored at home and just really want to see uh, how your friends react to things that they probably didn't expect from you, there's an answer. Let's go to uh, our man, Justin, J underscore Troc underscore 71. Through the years of reporting, I'm sure there have been quite a few instances of teams slash drivers slash owners being furious about something you reported. Who do you recall being the most angry about something like this? And can you describe <laughs> the scenario? I mean, we should oh, have opened okay, the show okay. with this because we would have not, have, we would not have answered a single WEC, IMSA or other question because we'd still be giving stories. Okay. I'll give you two. I won't mention the manufacturer, uh, for one of them, but I will tell you the uh, the person who did the second one. The first one was a manufacturer um, where their first appearance of their much-vaunted car um, and numbers of them in its first race ended up with a number of them crashing out in dramatic circumstances um, in what was then heavy rain. Uh, I had a reporter at the circuits. That reporter reported exactly what he saw and uh, offered the opinions of some of the people involved as to why. I got a massively furious response from a manufacturer representative on the Monday following when they returned from that race. Uh, We distilled that down to a very gentlemanly level. I went in, had a cup of coffee with them, told them exactly what we did, exactly what they should be doing. And I can just tell you, that I've had a very professional um, relationship with them and have helped them um, since since then. That is some um, five, six, seven years ago. Fury, once you explain your point of view, uh, can be turned around to a positive, and in that case was. And they became extremely successful with the evolution of that and the successor car for it. Second one was actually me popping into the... Um, the just before the podium for British GT race where I went to congratulate um, a driver on a podium position what had been a very very hard fought race and was surprised to find myself gripped by the throat um, for literally just wishing them um, well after a race well done as it were gripped by the throats and lifted off my feet by said Jones twin wow. can't remember whether or not Yes, indeed, by either David or Godfrey. Uh, you can tell them apart now because one of them had a part of their nose bitten off by their dog. Um, <laughs> but uh, they, yeah, it was uh, it was a moment. The, those two gentlemen did have some of the reputation, still do. Um, and I, all I can tell you was I'm not impressed by bullies very much. So um, don't think I wrote another word in praise of them and the rest of their careers after that one. Um, and I'm pleased to be telling the increasing number of weekend sports car uh, listeners what objection little shits they were wow well 
I can throw two back, one of them being somewhat short, and this one wasn't something that I wrote, but as the auto racing editor at speed.com, it, you know, crap rolls up and down, so this one rolled up. This would have been maybe the 2010, 9 or 10, uh, 12 hours of Sebring. This would have been strictly an America Le Mans series race. And at the time, I had hired John DeGeese a year before, whatever it was. And Whatever happened to him? Yes, whatever happened to that young lad uh, who now runs sportscar365.org, uh, I believe. I always forget the designation. Um, John came over. This is, I think, again, I could be off on the timing. It's a little while ago. Within an hour of the start of the race, half hour to an hour. Don't remember the exact tire choice as well. Um, I don't recall what tire brand that Tim Pappas's team was on at the time, but John had written a story. I believe it was well-sourced and accurately sourced, saying that Tim's team would be leaving brand A to go to brand B. I think Dunlop might have been in, involved here somehow. But John had spoken with, I believe, Tim, gotten a quote something along those lines again i apologize i'm a little bit fuzzy on it again this is truly i'm trying to run out the door to go shoot the start kind of thing and john comes over and said um tim papa says he's gonna sue me and sue us and sue everything because of the story that i just put up to which i said what story did you just put up and mentioned writing the story and about how the team was looking to change and whatever and again i there's no question i I seem to recall John got the story spot on. Tim did not like how it was phrased, though, and felt that it could lead him to some sort of breach with the tire brand and cost him a lot of money. And so all of a sudden, this problem, which I realized John was never trying to create, uh, would just happen to roll up to me. And so in the, well, hey, the the outlet trying to cover the race that's airing the race on television might be sued during the event by one of the competitors. Uh, we should probably try and resolve this beforehand. So I called him. I think I walked into the bathroom in the old media center and closed the door and listened to Tim, who was very irate. And I don't think he was wrong in being irate. He just didn't like reading what had been written. Uh, proceeded to say he was going to sue this and sue that and all everything, just the sky is falling. Now, this is maybe the dickish part of me, Graham. I'm also at that time thinking... I love you, buddy, but you're in, you know, GT2, not super competitive. If we don't tell you you're there, a lot of people probably won't know you are there or on whatever tires you're mad about. Like, I realize for him this was a huge thing, but at least in context, I'm kind of going, man, we sure are making this out like, boy, the sky is falling and you're going to destroy the entire sport by the story you've written. I don't recall the exact outcome. I think walked him off the ledge a little bit. Story didn't come down. I don't believe it came down. But it was just one of those things where you go, yeah, having a team owner about to go into uh, America's you know biggest, most luxurious and storied sports car race is going to sue you an hour before the start. Why don't you go ahead and handle that? That was a lot of fun. Um, maybe I'll I, I, I should, uh, go ahead. I was just about to add another one, which I've just remembered. Please. I do remember this one. Uh, Kota, <laughs> not that long ago. I remember uh, it. You and, 
you remember. I may have been and the guy who fed you, you the story because uh, for a variety of reasons, I couldn't break it. That was uh, <laughs> Ed Brown. Um, and we broke the story about the Nissan DPI, did we not? And uh, wrote that story. It was remarkably accurate with one exception, which was I got the wrong Nissan engine. Uh, but uh, reasonably happy with that. We'd got some confirmation from various people, including some sources at Nissan, including some sources at Ligier, and including some sources from the team. Uh, wrote the story, had my head down, uh, tapping away, became aware that there was somebody in my orbit, looked up, and there was a furious Ed Brown standing, eyeballing me in front of the desk, front desk at uh, Cota. Yeah, you were sitting right in front of me when he came in. Woo. There you go. There you go. So uh, he wasn't very happy, was he? No, he and wanted it was something to, along the lines of. Yeah, he wanted to I say words to, to you that children should oh, not well, hear. There, there were, no, absolutely. So uh, it was kind of is there a problem, Ed? And uh, it was threats of legal action, threats of all sorts. Said, would you like to come and talk to me about this outside the room? Would you like to do that? He didn't want to do that either, and I'm terribly sorry. Um, I think I've said it before on the weekend sportscast. I'm not impressed by bullies. Um, he tried to bully me at that story. Um, we were perfectly happy that we had the story correct. He wasn't happy that uh, the timing of that story, not necessarily the content, which tends to indicate to me that uh, it was absolutely nothing to do, to, to do whatsoever with the commercial viability of the project on the back of that. But it just got in the way of the media strategy. Sorry, that's so we've not got, my job. We've got three minutes left, and there's no way we're going to hit that because I just remembered two others that came to mind. So I not apologize. Thanks for opening the door, and maybe this is a fun close. And for those who've actually stayed around to the end, maybe you're getting some of the most fun aspects of this week's episode <laughs> of The Week in Sports Cars, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. So both of these are IndyCar-related, but they are what they are. So I had full confirmation, full knowledge, full everything that the amazing Robert Wickens would be leaving the DTM and his gig with Mercedes to come to IndyCar. Had called around, tried to get a quote, no luck. Uh, no one would call me back. That's fine. That often happens. You obviously want that if possible, whether it's the team saying yes or no comment or declined. You'd like to have something that you can actually – show that contact was made and interaction happened and best case you have a yes worst case you either have a no no comment whatever something couldn't make that happen okay doesn't change the fact that the story was fully sussed multiple sources etc etc got a hurried call after trying to make contact and everyone saying no, and I don't remember exactly how the chain of events went, Graham, but I had told a friend, uh, hey, yeah, you know, we're going to be publishing this, expecting that to stay between us. And however it worked out, this got back to the team. And that, hey, you know, they're going to be publishing something very soon here. So folks that refused to respond all of a sudden got the super hurried, hi, text, please call me back. Um, you know, need to talk kind of thing. And it was a case of, oh, well, that's convenient. Um, and at that point, honestly, had said, well, story's been written. We're good to go. And uh, just, you know, this is just a waste of my time. 
uh, seeing as how you wasted my time earlier. So I'm all good. Um, then I think it was a phone call when there was no response to the text. And again, the same kind of hurried thing. Then another text. And I think I finally replied to that more or less a, a what I should have said new phone who dis, but, um, that then led to a, well, we understand you're publishing this story. And if you do it, it could ruin everything and destroy everything. And, I'm overplaying things a bit, but the whole thing weighs in the balance. And if you were to publish this, you could destroy it all. And I knew that to be complete nonsense and said so and was then told, no, you're wrong. Okay. Really long story short, story goes up. It's all accurate. Everything that I said would happen happened. Didn't destroy anything. So just out of pure curiosity, I think it was earlier this year was with robert wickens and said hey by the way when did all that stuff kind of get going get signed off and uh he said oh yeah months earlier (laughs) (laughs) yeah no this is done way before like wait and i'm like i knew it i'm glad i trusted my gut but the one why don't we close on this unless you want to throw in another one i've mentioned this one graham on i think i mentioned it on my season one dinner with racers appearance and I mentioned that the the owner, founder, inheritor of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, Tony George, the heir, uh, person who also founded the Vision Racing Team that his stepson, Ed Carpenter, drove for, that's now become Ed Carpenter Racing and such, mentioned that back in the day, early in my uh, reporting career when I was just starting to dip into IndyCar, having actually started out in sports cars, wrote a season preview for the 2019 season. And I brought a little bit of humor to it. Maybe it wasn't received well. I could have been an a-hole about it. I don't know. It doesn't still live on the internet, so I can't reread it. Uh, everything went away when speed.com did. But I basically said, Ed Carpenter, who's an amazing race car driver, but an oval specialist, that's his background, knows almost nothing about road courses retired from road courses years ago and said, no, I'm just going to do the ovals from now on. Well, in the 2009 season, Graham, Ed was still driving oval, uh, driving road courses. And so I think I, in my season preview for the team being a little bit cheeky, referred to him as oval only. Ed had mentioned that of the whatever number 90 plus, however many road course races he's, he'd done, zero wins, zero anything. And again, he's trying his best to learn a new discipline, but it was just, it wasn't happening. So all of this struck Tony George, uh, the most powerful man in open wheel racing who happens to own the team in a very bad way. So to my bosses at speed, the following letter was forwarded and I've never read the letter. I've mentioned that it existed, but it just came to mind and I'm going to include this in my autobiography one day that I'm, that will never get written, but why not just uncork <laughs> this here? So it's a little bit of a read, but let me just do it. Cause it's great. And I'll also mentioned mention uh, when he wrote this, my mother was believed had been believed to be dead for 14 years. We later found out that she was alive, but, when we did, she actually soon died soon after that. So anyways, just sharing you here on a little bit of the tone from Tony George, T George at the website.com Marshall. I just read your season preview as part of the media clips 
that gets circulated by the series. Regarding your assessment of Vision Racing, its personnel, both past and present, and its two-date performance over four years plus one race, it's absolutely clear to me how totally clueless you are. It amazes me how people like you, who own a computer, apparently the only requirement of speed.com, can get a job as a journalist. If you truly followed the progress of this particular team, you would draw a completely different conclusion. The fact that it is underfunded is not an excuse, but I would put up our performance against all the teams outside the, quote, big three over the last four years, and that includes the transition teams from Champ Car. With regard to Ed Carpenter in particular, count the number of road courses the IndyCar Series has had since 2005. Add one Indy Lights race and two Daytona 24s, and you will arrive at the total number of road races he's participated in in his life. With his limited road racing experience and some help from Brian, I believe, Herta and his team, he has improved from four seconds off the pace of P1 to one and a half to two seconds off of P1 in qualifying and within a half second of some pretty darn good road racers in a very competitive series, not to mention his improved race pace and improved race strategy. If you don't believe me, I encourage you to take the time to look it up. The way you rant on and on about how inept Ed and the team are makes you seem like a jerk. Double exclamation point. Oh, and by the way, don't be surprised if Ed delivers the team's first win. It has more than a slight chance of happening. Yes, even with Ryan Hunter Ray with the team now. How do you think it might make the guys feel if they were to read your crap when they busted their butts to get the car ready in just a few long days and executed pit stops like Penske and Ganassi? No, better than Penske and Ganassi. And as a team, we're the strongest car on the track at the end of the race. You make it sound like we just picked these guys out of the gutter. Did you even know that Neil was Ryan's engineer at Ray Hall? Do the facts even matter? Did I mention that when you rant on and on, you seem like a jerk? Does your mother know you are a jerk? I'm sure you're a nice jerk, but a jerk nonetheless and we're almost done here and so you know i am guilty of trying to hire americans including drivers who deserve a shot whenever possible and wherever it makes sense marshall you know what might be kind of fun i think i will start a blog maybe a two or i can just start writing a column i own a computer on the two websites i bet i can get access to them I could critique your writings, exclamation point. In the meantime, I guess we'll just roll on out to Long Beach and see if we can go 0 for 99. I guess Dale Coyne can go 0 for whatever. No reason to change the way we approach a race weekend now. Have a great day. Regards, Tony George. Bless his heart. I mean, that is email-based perfection the guy takes i'm in awe everything that i do to task reshapes reality completely i mean truly the vision racing team had ganassi and penske on their heels um this is amazing and so i've kept it 
And and uh, like that, I said, this is from April 8th, not 1st, April 8th, 2009. And I've saved it because it's so good. Uh, so if well, we're just talking about I, I, someone opposing dear things, good Lord, I need to come back and remember that uh, 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 Justin, J underscore truck underscore 71 asked, and we're now in overtime a little bit. That's one of my favorites. And there's no question, Justin, as to what the person thought. Because they didn't say it man to man. They made sure it was conveyed in electronic form. I love it. I'm so thankful for Tony in sending this. Um, what was he? Was it the Vision Racing car that was the original uh, car that had um, Boucher's Hammer Emporium as a title sponsor? I believe so. I believe we stole them. Yeah, there's another letter. There's another letter there too, <laughs> clearly on stealing Boucher's Hammer Emporium as the primary sponsor. It was a delayed primary, right? It only took you know ten years or whatever for us to sign them. But yes guilty of stealing that from the vision racing team so that's one of my favorites i've been told off by many though last night while having dinner with my wife in her hospital room got an email from a very grumpy driver who didn't like my assessment of his uh bowling ball-esque performance during the portland indycar race and uh as spoken on again the weekend indycar hey i'm good with that and i guess that's my question for you to close here i'm good with these things I'm not saying they make me happy, but what I respect is a driver who will send me a text or call or come see me in person and say, Pruitt, have you suffered a head injury? What is wrong with you? And at least we have a dialogue. Might not agree when we're done, but at least there's the respect, you know, to say, hey, I want to make sure I uncork the problems I have with you when I spoke with Ben Keating recently, I didn't know that I'd written something he disliked. I called him answered. I said, Hey Ben, got a quick question about this. And he said, Oh, before we get to that, I got a bone to pick with you to which I said, really? All right, let's go. And told me understood his point. He, I wrote something that in retrospect, I understand could be misinterpreted as a negative statement towards him told him that okay. no the thing while i absolutely see that it could be read that way so i get why you're mad i did not write that with any intent or malice though and also said trust me as tony george maybe super confirmed more than a decade ago if i got something to say i'll say it uh, so there's we're pretty clear on that but just to know that the thing you perceived as a slight was not um, and so is I, again, I really appreciate that. And the fact that some, a driver owner, whomever will care enough about the relationship to say, Hey, you made me mad. Let's talk it out or help me to understand how you got to this idiot. Are you a fan of that? Or would you prefer there be more separation of church of state church and state? And Hey, I'm not here to write to make you happy or report or do a podcast to make you happy. And if you're all wound up about it, then you know what? That's you. I'm, I'm not sure where you might fall. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's 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 an understanding, isn't it, of uh, the different roles in which we have. I've been on the other side of that transaction for much of my professional life, and I've had to have some of those difficult uh, conversations, and some of those conversations haven't gone well. Uh, but it's, yeah, it. I'd, I'd much rather have those conversations. And oddly enough, one of the latest ones I've had was with Ben Keating when we wrote the story about uh, the Ford at Le Mans and caught up with Ben. He'd only just got to terms with the fact that the story was out and it wasn't, uh, you know, within his comfort zone. But he was an absolute gent about it. Um, I think we're about at the end, aren't we? We are. We are. Uh, before, we, before we finish... Um, it's not been a great weekend, uh, the last weekend, for motorsport. We did lose a young man at Spa-Francorchamps. It's not in our bailiwick <clears throat> of either IndyCar or sports cars, but one the family, Antoine Hubert. And I have to say I was somewhat affected by my encounter the following morning with Pierre Fillon, uh, the president of the ACO, who informed me I didn't know that uh, Antoine had been a previous one of the 24 hours of karting and had worked for the ACO, I believe, as an instructor. Um, I think it always does good to remember uh, that, well, the tragedy in these cases, particularly a very, very talented young man, and to also remember somebody has been, I'm not saying forgotten, but somewhat sidelined in this, uh, Juan Manuel Correa, who is currently, well, fighting uh, with major injuries as results of his part of that incident. Um, I don't like to bring a downer uh, to this show because we are here to inform and entertain, but it does let us remember just for a moment uh, that this is a dangerous sport and we have further reminders of that over the weekend with the injuries we saw for uh, Alexandra Kwani, for Jack Manchester and for Mike Gouache in the European Le Mans series. Um, you know, and, and thankfully they're all going to be injuries they get over. Uh, sadly, Antoine Hubert is not going to be that lucky. I'm going to leave you with this. Um, Let's remember their efforts. Let's remember how tough this is. Let's remember this is a very dangerous sport. And excellence, truly, uh, is something we should actually relish and take pleasure from every single day that we're watching it. <laughs>